This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me this morning again to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. And we are continuing uh, this theme that we have uh, just over these summer weeks of uh, the ministry of Elisha following in the footsteps of a prophet. And uh, I want to begin reading 2 Kings chapter 4 from verse 38. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine, and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds, and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds. These were uh, vines, obviously were not grape vines, they were vines that these gourds, they would be things like cucumbers, I suppose you could say. He gathered a whole lap full of them. He came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. It happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So he said, Then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. And then just following on from that, then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But a servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? And he said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate, and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so we find Elisha here in Gilgal, and it says it was a time of famine. A time of famine. Now, you have to understand that the the life and ministry of Elisha recorded in these scriptures uh, was not written down in chronological order. And so the famine that he's talking about here, the scripture's talking about here, more than likely was the famine actually we read about in chapter 8, a little farther on from this. And you remember in chapter 8 how that the uh, Elisha went to the widow or went to the woman of, of Shunem and told her there was going to be a seven year famine in the land, so please leave until the famine is over. Of course, the sons of the prophets couldn't leave because that's the place, the very place where they were to minister in Israel. Famine almost always in the Old Testament, when there's a famine in the land or there's a drought or there's pestilence, is a sign of God's displeasure. And God had much to be displeased about uh, with Israel at this particular time. And so very often after many, many warnings that go unheeded, 
Then, as Clifford said in another illustration earlier before I got up, God has got a way of getting our attention. And he had a way of getting nations' attention. And often, at the last uh, ditch attempt, he would cause a famine or a drought or a pestilence to come to get their attention. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Uh, what about the New Testament? Well, we know that in Revelation, uh, during the tribulation period, in Revelation chapter 6, we know that there's going to be tremendous changes uh, as far as meteorology is concerned, and, 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 and uh, astronomically there's going to be changes as well. And uh, again, this is the judgment of God upon a, a, a sinful, uh, God-rebelling earth. We know that there's three different sets of of, of uh, judgments that will come upon the earth during that particular period. <coughs> Excuse me, there's going to be these seal judgments, seven seal judgments, and then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl judgments, if God is pouring a bowl out upon the earth. And I'll just mention just a couple of them. Uh, as far as the seal judgments concerned, in uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 3, to verse 6 it says when he opened the third seal I heard the third living creature say come and see and I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not hurt or harm the oil and the wine. Uh, the seal judgments begin by the, with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The white horse, the rider on the white horse who goes forth and conquers, which is speaking of, obviously, of, of, of war. And then the black horse, uh, sorry, the, the red horse that comes next, uh, and that is speaking about, about death and slaughter. There's lots of killings that happen. Uh, and then the fourth seal uh, we see here is the rider on the pale horse, and that's death. Uh, and death comes after war and slaughter and famine. And the black horse speaks of famine. And so there's going to be great famine come on the land uh, so that uh, there's such scarcity. And then when you go on down to the sixth seal, it look, I looked and opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So this great earthquake had some uh, effect over a very large area. And the kings of the earth and great men and the rich men and commanders and the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And then in chapter 8, again it talks about the trumpet judgments here, and the first one says, and angels sounded, and hail and fire followed uh, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And then the fourth trumpet in verse 12, and the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the night, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And then in chapter 16, in the last one, uh, again we see something 
tremendous. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out of his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and every mountains were not found, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. The talent is 114 pounds, so that's slightly over 100 weight. You know, there's hail today like golf balls. We see it sometimes in the news and television where they have dented cars and smashed cars' windscreens. Can you imagine that blocks of ice, a hundredweight, the weight of a bag of coal or the bag of a cement? That's going to do a lot of destruction. It's going to kill a lot of people. And yet, it says, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Rather than repenting, they blaspheme God in spite of it. And so... In the Old Testament and far on in the New Testament, you're going to find that God uh, will judge the earth for sure. And so there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. That means he was in teaching mode. When it says the sons of the prophets were sitting, it's the same in the New Testament. The rabbis often had a group of men around them to teach them, and they'd perhaps sit under the shade of a tree somewhere uh, and, and be taught. You remember that Jesus in the home of, uh, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, how that uh, he was in teaching mode because it says that Mary came and sat at his feet. Uh, Martha was working in the kitchen, but Mary realized Jesus is in teaching mode, so I, I need to hear what he's saying. I want to hear what the master's talking about. So she sat at his feet to listen as a pupil would do. And so here they are, schools of the prophets. Uh, there's a time of teaching and ministry going on. And then it comes lunchtime. So he says, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So it's time to eat. But there's a famine in the land. And even the sons of the prophets are not exempt when the famine's in the land. Although God is going to meet their need in a supernatural way, as we'll see. Not just here, but in the next portion. And so in spite of the famine, there was something they were going to eat. It was a stew. It was probably a bland stew, maybe a little bit of meat and some veggies. Uh, but it would keep body and soul together at least. They had something to eat. But one of the number decided that he wanted to spice things up a little bit. Maybe add a little taste to it. So he had to look for some herbs in the field. You know, he probably thought, we're eating this every day, and I'm a bit tired of this. It's a bit bland. I'll go and get some herbs and mix it up into the mix. That's a good idea. That seemed like a good idea, but actually it wasn't a good idea. Because this guy that went out was no Bear Grylls. He was no survivalist expert. You know, if you go out to look for wild mushrooms, you better know what you're looking for. Hey, you're going to end up in the A&E before the day's out, aren't you? Uh, when I was a wee boy, there was horses that were kept in the field behind where I lived, and you could be certain you were going to get mushrooms uh, early in the morning, but they were easy to spot. You know, they were typical-looking mushrooms, but those ones you can eat of the trees and all the rest of it, you better know what fungi you're going to eat, otherwise it could kill you. 
So this guy goes out and he finds this vine growing with these wild gourds. And they looked the part. And they probably were the right color. And it was probably the right foliage. But he had no idea this was going to cause poison in the pot. Mm. You need to be very careful what you eat. Now I know that some of you are very careful in what you eat. You look at the labels, don't you? You say, well, what salt contents in this? Or what fat contents in this? Is it polyunsaturates or is it trans fats or what is it or what's the cell by the... You're careful of what you eat physically. And that's no bad thing. I just horse it into me. I don't look at any labels. I just eat the stuff. <laughs> Take a wee sniff and smells all right. <laughs> Down the hatch. <laughs> but some of these are fastidious and very careful of what you eat, and that's fine. I'm not knocking that. But what about what we eat spiritually? That is much more important because that's going to affect you spiritually and maybe even eternally. So you better be sure what you're eating. And so he comes on and he, he begins to cut these gourds into the pot. And then they dish it up. And the sons of the prophets says, Oh man of God, there's death in this pot. It looked good. It smelt good. It felt good. But it didn't taste good. As soon as they began to taste it, they knew there's something desperately wrong with this. There probably was a bitter taste of it. There's death in the pot. We need to be careful what we eat. There's a lot of death has come into the Christian pot. And you need to be careful you don't swallow it because it will affect you. One of the great teachings in Scripture is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. No greater teaching. That's what saved us. The blood of Jesus. Jesus dying in our place, taking the punishment for our sins. And yet today, there's those who have added wild gourds to that mix. And there's those who even no longer believe that. There's those who have gone too far to say, God would not be a God of love if he allowed his own son to suffer horribly on that Roman cross for anybody. As even some have said, it's equivalent to cosmic <coughs> child abuse. But only a God of love would have sent his son to that yes, cross. Man. Yes, man. Only the love of God for us right. would allow that to happen. But there's parts of the so-called evangelical church starting to believe that nonsense. And it's poisoning. And it's brought death to the pot. And it will bring death to those preachers that preach it. What an affront to a holy God who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. One of the great, great teachings in Scripture is the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, 
was the great exponent of the grace of God. Not a one of us would sit here today without the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. So our whole salvation is based on the unmerited favor of a holy God to a sinful man. Isn't it wonderful? And it was the Apostle Paul who got the revelation of the grace of God. It was the Apostle Paul who taught it. It was the Apostle Paul who even challenged Peter, who was slackening on the grace of God. He was compromising on the grace of God, and Paul was stood him to his face. So the grace of God is a mighty important thing in the Christian pot, food that we eat, that we ought to know, that we should live by. But sadly and tragically, <coughs> there are grace teachers today who have taken the grace of God and who preach a message that you cannot recognize from Scripture who say such things as the grace of God is so wonderful that we no longer need to repent of any of our sins because we're already forgiven our sins. All our future sins are already forgiven, so why repent? Why be introspective? Why look? Why examine your heart? Why do all of that? Because God's already forgiven us. And let me tell you, if we swallow that, it'll bring death to the pot. That's not what the grace of God is about. I love the grace of God. The grace of God is the most wonderful, marvelous thing. We could not live this Christian life without the grace of God. But if any, every cult there has ever been that has come out of the Christian church has built on a truth that has been taken to an extent that not even God intended. So we need to be careful. And there are those who say within that particular camp, as it were, there are those... Now, they're not saying that we should go out and sin uh, because of the grace of God. Not at all. They don't teach that. But what they're saying is if you do sin, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Don't repent of it. Don't confess it. God's not interested. It's just a slip up. Grace of God covers all of that. Hold on a wee minute. Did the apostle Paul miss something? Eh? Did we have to wait 2,000 years to get what Paul missed? I don't think so. I think it's in the book. And they say such things as, well, God loves us so much, he's so satisfied with us, he's so pleased with us today, that he smiles ever on us, so no matter what we do, God will always be satisfied with us, he'll always be pleased with us. Absolute nonsense. Complete nonsense. And we need to be careful. If that is the case, why did Jesus rebuke five out of the seven churches in Revelation? Why did he do that? If we cannot displease him, why in the world would he rebuke those churches? Why in the world would the apostle Paul rebuke the Corinthian church about all the nonsense they were doing? They were coming, getting drunk at the Lord's table. Can you imagine that? They were sinning in ways that even the world wasn't even sinning in. And the apostle Paul rebukes them soundly and roundly. Why would he do that if God was totally and utterly pleased with their lifestyle? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5 and 10 from the NIV, it says, find out what pleases the Lord. One of them actually said, all this business about God pleasing, forget it. God's already pleased. So if you spend your whole life trying to please God, you'll tire yourself out because God's already pleased. Well, I'm sorry the Apostle Paul didn't know that. Isn't that amazing that Paul didn't know that? Isn't that amazing the man that God gave the revelation of grace to? He missed that. Find out what pleases the Lord, he says. 2 Corinthians 5 and 9. So we make it our goal to please him. Amen. Colossians 1 and 10. And we pray that this order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4. 4. We're not trying to please men, but please God who tests our hearts. Glory to God. <laughs> Be careful what you swallow. It may look the same. It may sound the same. It may feel the same. But it brings poison to the pot. And it will do you harm in the end. And so they could not eat. At least they had the sense when they tasted it, they knew immediately there's something wrong with this. It's not right can't eat this. If we do eat it, it'll poison us. This is why you've got to know this book. Really know it. This is why you've got to test the scriptures. The Bereans tested the scriptures. They tested the words and the preaching they heard by looking at the scriptures. They searched it daily to see if these things be so. And so they cried out, there is death in the pot. Isn't it amazing how many today, even in so-called evangelical churches, are accepting the redefinition of marriage? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Did you ever think you'd live to see the day of that? I saw a little clip, some of you sent it to me, of Jimmy Carter, the former president of the United States, who says, I'm a I've been a born-again Christian, so I've been a boy teaches Bible classes in his church. And the interviewer asked him about gay marriage. And he says, no, I don't have a problem. He says, uh, he says well, do you think Jesus would have a problem with that? He says, no, not at all. No, Jesus wouldn't have a problem with that. He says, no, I haven't got any scripture to say that. And I thought, no, because there ain't none. <laughs> there is none. That's why you haven't got any. So it's your opinion. Well, what kind of opinion is that for a born-again believer? If it's not based in the scriptures of God. And it's brought death to the pot. And so he said, Elisha this is, he said, then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. There was nothing harmful in the pot. Bring me some flour. Think of King James says, bring me 
a little meal. This represents two things. It represents the written word, and it represents the living Christ. And as long as we keep our eyes in the, living, the written word and on the living Christ, then we'll not be poisoned by what we eat. We'll recognize right from wrong. In the written words, Psalm 119 and 9, wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto thy word? Psalm 119, 11. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus said in John 15 and 3 to his disciples, now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. There's something about the word that counteracts the poisons of the devil in this world. When Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, it was the word he used to fight and to counteract the devil. What about the living Christ? 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 5, 25, 26. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Titus 2, 4. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Hebrews 10.10 We're sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Keep your nose in this word and keep your eyes on Jesus. That'll keep you right. That'll keep death out of your pot. Hmm. And so he just put a handful of flour in he says, go ahead, eat. And they ate, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. You remember before in the previous study how he went to the fountain at, you know, where the, where the rivers of Jericho was, and he threw in the salt, and all the poisonous water was healed. And again, we talked about the word and so forth. And then, just following that, here is another miracle regarding food. It says, Then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. Now, let me just pause there just for a moment. Just put that in pause to give you a little kind of a backdrop because this man is from Baal, Shalisha. This is one of the cities in Israel that now has been prefixed with one of their gods. Now, we're talking here about the time of the divided kingdom. Let me say first of all that, <laughs> that Samuel and Kings and Chronicles originally was one book. Originally it was one book in the Hebrew Bible. 
But that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament was a time when Greek influence was widespread and most people in Israel were speaking Greek. And so tradition says that there were 70 elders or maybe 72, some say six from each tribe of Israel, scholars, and that they decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And it was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint is a word we get from the Latin that means 70. And so that's why we get, now they split it up, and that's why we get First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Now as we read First and Second Kings here in Samuel and Chronicles, we're talking about the time of a divided kingdom. After Solomon died, his son Jeroboam took to the throne. Now Solomon in his later life became a very hard taskmaster. He put very heavy taxes on his people and he made them work very hard, almost as slaves, to build his palaces and his temples and even the great temple, plus temples for his wives' gods and all the rest of it. He had a tremendous building program going on and people were tired and weary. And then when he died, his son took over and they thought they would get respite from that, but instead he was worse. He wanted to tax them more. And so there was a rebellion. And ten of the tribes, they uh, appointed uh, Rehoboam to be king over them. And that became known then as Israel. Sometimes it's made known as Ephraim in the Old Testament because Ephraim was the biggest tribe in Israel. So Jeroboam, he was in the south in Judah. The two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was the smaller of the two, so it just became known as Judah. And so you have this divided kingdom. Uh, and in the northern part, by the way, First and Second Kings takes place over a period of just over 400 years. So that's quite a long period, isn't it? And in the northern kingdom, uh, where we have 19 kings of Israel, every single one of them were bad, idolatrous. It seemed to be that the next one was even worse than the one before. That's how bad it was. And that continued and continued until the Assyrians came and took them away until they're gone. The southern kingdom had 20 kings, and out of the 20, only eight were good and followed the Lord. And some of them pulled down the, 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 the idols that had been put up. And so they continued until in the end they lasted another 150 years after the 10 northern kingdoms taken by the Assyrians and they continued until the Babylonians came in and took them into captivity for a period. Are you still with me? Now Elijah and Elisha, they ministered during the time of the divided kingdom in the northern part in the 10 tribe Israel with these awful, wicked, idolatrous kings now, the first thing that Rehoboam did was he realized that the godly in the land, they would go south to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So he wanted to prevent that. So he raised up two temples, one in Bethel, which was south of, of the tent tribe nation of Israel, and one in Dan, which is in the north. And he put up golden calves and said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Worship these. 
And so people began to worship these golden calves. And so many of the priests, they began to worship pagan idols. And those who were good and godly, they migrated south to worship in the temple. So here's a man from the north. This is the point I'm getting to. Here's a man from the north, from Baal, Shalisha, and he has got an offering of food. So, well, how did he get that in the time of famine? I don't know. Maybe he lived near a river. Maybe there's an artesian well beside his house. But he had, at least he had some food. And he did what the scriptures in Deuteronomy 18 tell them, told him to do. Take this to the priest as an offering of your first fruits. Because priests weren't allowed to own any land, so they were dependent on what people gave them. But the trouble was he couldn't find any priests. <laughs> None of Israel was worshipping the true God, the living God, Jehovah. So what does he do? He does the next best thing. He goes and he gives it to Elisha and the sons of the prophets. Now, he could have been greedy. He could have said, well, there's no priest in Israel that worships Jehovah. I'll just keep this to myself. God won't mind, even though it's scriptural that I should give it to a priest even though technically I'll be breaking the law of a don't. But look, there are no priests, so I'll just keep it. And anyway, it's time of famine. And that's the time you need to hold on to what you've got. It's not a time for giving away from yourself. But he didn't think that way. He thought, no, I'm going to honor God. And if I can't find a priest to give it to, I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to find a prophet. I'm going to give it to him. And so he went to Elisha, to the sons of the prophets. Listen to me. In times of famine, it's still good to give. It's still good to give. You mightn't have as much to give. In fact, you may have hardly anything to give, but it's still good to give something. And he gave what he had. Maybe it wasn't what he would get in the normal harvest year, but he gave out of what he had because he realized the value of this. And he gave what he had. Now look what happens. It says there were 20 loaves of barley bread. Now when, you, when the Bible says loaves here, it's, we would say we baps. You know, like a burger bap. Or a Belfast bap. A wee bap. Not a great big tiger loaf. You know, not a big ormo loaf, but a wee bap. So they're not very big. And he had only 20 of them. There's a hundred prophets. He's only got 20, but he gives it. And so he gives these 20 loaves of barley bread, newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, or Elisha this is now, Elisha said, give it to the people that they may eat. But a servant said, Gehazi, his servant said, listen to what he says, his servant said, what? Shall I set this before a hundred men? <laughs> He's so full of unbelief, wasn't he? Now you would think that by this time, after a few years of being at this man's right hand, 24-7, seeing the miracles that he performed, you would think the penny would have dropped by now that if Elisha says, give it out, something's going to happen here. 
But he was so full of unbelief, even though, even though he was servant to the great man of God. But he was still so full of unbelief. And his, his attitude is really rude, isn't it? What? You want me to give this 20 barley loaves to 100 men? Now we found this Gehazi in a previous study. We found he was rude with the woman of Shunem, didn't he? He wanted to push her away. Something's wrong with his heart. You'll find out the next lesson. He had a heart problem. And it keeps coming out bit by bit by bit. Now, I don't know why he ended up as Elisha's servant. Elisha must have chose him. But even though he chose him, he's not doing a very good job. The Apostle Paul had Demas for a while. Then he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So just because you're maybe around man of God doesn't mean to say that you're going to live a godly life. You should and you aren't, but it doesn't necessarily follow. It has to reach our hearts, hasn't it? Give it to the people. The servant said, What shall I set this before 100 men? You know, Judas in the New Testament, whenever Mary took that beautiful box of spiked nard, very costly, and she poured it out over Jesus, what did Judas say? Could this not have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? As soon as Judas saw that box, he immediately calculated the cost of it. He knew the price of it, but he didn't know the value of it. To use the old cliche, he knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And Jesus knew the value of it. He knew the value of it. And then it goes on to say, not that he cared for the poor, but he carried the bag. He was the treasure. And he was stealing from the bag. And his eyes a bit like this. Those are the price of everything, the value of nothing. He calculated this up in his head. And he was angry and rude. But Elisha said again, <laughs> he just ignored him. Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Every time you go to sacrifice something for the kingdom, and if it's something that's going to cost you personally, a sacrifice that you're going to make and maybe cost you a lot to make it, somebody else will point the finger because they won't understand that. They don't get it because they would never do it. They would never do it. Little woman that threw the two mites into the offering. It's easy to count that, isn't it? 
But Jesus saw the value of it more than the price of it. So he said, thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Hmm. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord's. What you give to God, even though it may seem to be not enough, it may seem to be inadequate, but if it's all you've got, God will stretch it. He'll make it go further than you can ever imagine. This man brought the best that he had, all that he had got, and he gave it willingly, and God stretched it. Twenty barley loaves fed a hundred men, and there was leftovers. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fishes, but what, are that, what is that among so many? Jesus said, hand it out. <laughs> and there was 12 baskets left over. I can guarantee you that if you're going to do something for the kingdom of God and you look at yourself, you will think, Lord, I don't have enough. Don't have enough talent. Don't have enough ability. I don't have enough. But if you give what you have, God will make that go further than you could ever imagine. <laughs> Our bit's the natural bit. His bit's the supernatural bit. <laughs> and Elisha wasn't phased at all. He knew what God was going to do. Didn't trouble him at all. He just says, give it out. And as he gave it out, lo and behold, it began to multiply. Wouldn't you have been like there to see that happen? Began to multiply. In their very hands as they were giving it out, no doubt, it began to multiply. Every time they put their hand into the bag or the box, there was more there, and they gave it out, and they were all filled, and there were some left over according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful ministry this man had. What a miraculous, supernatural ministry. And yet Gehazi was right there with him. And he didn't get it. Demas was right there with Paul, and he didn't get it. Let's make sure that we get it. That we follow the Lord wholly in our daily lives. Lord, we give you thanks. We bless you for who you are. That even in times of famine, you're with us. In the lean times, the difficult seasons, and it seems like there's nothing left. Lord, you're still there. And you can stretch what we have. So we bless you for that. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.